You can use the mic. I understand the, spe the speaker system is far better than I thought it was. What, can you hear me though? I can hear you pretty well, yeah. Because I prefer not to use the mic. I'm a walker and water and but, uh, but first I want to thank everybody for their time. Um, getting kind of the designation of master of disaster always stop that I know. But uh, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting time of meeting. Tornadoes, wildfires, damn things. That's really funny. It was in Hawaii. 
first thing I thought was like the most slide to the surgeon. It's pretty pretty big issue with people that April or tornadoes flooding. Every single time you turn on, you're either watching politics or some major tragedy that occurred not either in our country or internationally. It's there all the time. If you go home tonight, something you're gonna read is about some block that went out somewhere and somebody fell down somewhere. It's just our our viewpoint, the social consciousness of what we see and hear when it comes to a disaster issue. Now there's good and bad things with that. One, it's made us all afraid. I think everybody that sits in this room, no matter how macho, whatever that you are, you get on the on the train system in any city, you're it's it, we're looking more, we're feeling more. The good part that's come out of that, if you're a property manager, is suddenly every single person just about in every tenant, every building worries when there's a train. They actually listen to the property manager. Imagine that. There's such a difference. People go, well, we're going to evacuate. If you think about it five years ago, what was everyone's viewpoint? You had to look just like you did in high school when they said, fire me. We ought to get in a single file. Everybody had to leave the building. Half the people went home because they didn't know how long it would take. A lot of the people now actually stay. They listen. People are walking down flights of stairs and going, I saw in New York that I have these reflective strips going down the stairs. We should have that in our property. That's a general person who's an assistant, a vice president of a company, people that have absolutely nothing to do with it. Our thought process is So we're going to have, and start this off with kind of a little bit of an interactive session with you. Everybody, you got your first aid kit, fine, right? Okay? As a group, kind of group yourselves together in about five people. And I want you to come up with the eight most interesting things that if a terrorist attack or a major power outage occurred around where you are, what are the eight things you would put into your first aid kit? And you're thinking in terms of real estate. So I'll give you the basic ideas. You need water, right? Duct tape. And, you know, but what would you do? What would you put together? Then we're going to hear what other people are going to say, and then you're going to see what a lot of people around the rest of the country see. So let's take five minutes. Get together in groups of
you have buildings that are in different sectors of the city or in different counties within a suburban area, and they don't realize that you have different improvements. And they don't have those numbers or the account numbers, and they do need the account numbers. Uh, your emergency equipment inventory has been updated. That means you don't have what you need for the generator that's actually sitting around. Have it that duct tape, which people most people go ahead. And my personal favorite is, I don't care what you have, cellular telephones, voice over IP, uh, voice over IP systems, you need a pot slide somewhere in the public, plain old telephone. They don't break, as long as uh, there isn't a break actually underground, they require no power. You can literally tap into them very, very easily. Uh, you can pull another phone from somewhere in the building, you need to have that somewhere in the system. So what we learned with this is that we really need multiple forms of communication. Heard people over time in every business model, the internet is going to change the world, wireless is going to change the world. When certain things happen, you need to find whatever is available to make it happen. So, what would happen if you were in a tornado? Now, one of the things you need to think about in the weather systems, there are really two different kinds, right? Ones that hit you in a very specific covered area, and ones that cover great large areas of geography. The tornado system comes and goes quite quick, but the winds extend for approximately a mile. So within that mild affected area, if I'm in it, okay, what am I actually going to have? What's not, what am I going to have and what am I not going to have? You're not going to have anything hard. Simple answer, okay? So you're going to have your internet, you're going to have your laptop. That's how you're going to be able to get your message out. And that's really what I want to stress today, is when you think about a calamity occurring, is how do you get your message out from where you are, out. Lots of people are going to call in. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Your job is to get your information out so that other people can help you remove disease. If I'm outside, my internet, my landline, my two-way danger, my blackberry, my son. The funny thing is, the person inside has two forms, but they can send information to anybody on anyone who's born outside. And that's why we need to have multiple forms of development. So communication is key to disaster management. Many people need to be kept informed. Uh, we're talking about the bridge calls before and how we can start to eliminate those. Coordinated information flow can be very time consuming. Who's doing what where, especially in a building? What is the property manager doing if a hurricane is coming? Well, I don't really want them on a bridge call. I want them moving the 100 pound planters. I want them moving the picnic tables. I want them closing the doors to every single line office so the windows are blown out. I, don't have, I actually have some sort of protection for the comedy. Limited human resources at the site of the disaster. It's a combination of people leaving, uh, your inaccessibility to that area, uh, worrying about the families, conference calls are time consuming, web access is widely available. So I think about a hurricane, now what's the big difference? Now we're covering large blocks of area. Think about Katrina, it, it covered two states. What are you going to do when you're covering that volume of area? So again, it's the same profile as a tornado, but suddenly it's such a large area, so many people didn't have all of their wireless communication. Why isn't that available inside? I don't understand that. The weather system affects all the signals being sent between the towers. So it's a complete interruption. The way your cellular signal actually works when you're driving in your car is you're actually carrying your signal from tower to tower to tower as you're driving down. When you actually go down the highway and one signal loses tower, you're within the range of the next tower. The moment any one of those towers actually break the signal, your call is lost. And you get the call is lost on Whatever information was transmitted, and that happens inside. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anywhere where you're beginning to take that signal now. That's where you actually get into uh, really like AT&T and the other phone companies. Before that, they use latent redundancy to actually running global wires 
actually come from that. They had some degree which they used to communicate to know when a tower was up and down and not communicate outside the So now let's talk big about a terrorist attack. Again, this wouldn't have been up here before 9 11, but it actually have two scenarios. There's a terrorist attack before 9 11 or at 9 11, and then there's a terrorist attack around on the one that bombs her. When the terrorist attack happened in New York, everybody here heard that people thought the phone systems in New York didn't work. On a show of hands, how many people thought New York didn't work right? Okay, so most people think that it did work right. You're the people that are wrong. The phone systems work right. If you called into New York, you got a business here. That's why you thought it didn't work. The way the phone systems are designed is that when you have a calamity, all phone traffic is brought from inside the affected area where they can call out. Every single phone line, every single available phone line, was rerouted so that anyone with access to a phone inside the island of Manhattan could pick up that phone and dial their loved Every single one. The cellular system worked for about 30 minutes after the first plane hit. Then suddenly, all of that traffic was rerouted. So suddenly, same thing. Your cellular phone would actually try to call in, and it would actually, I think the signal that you got on there was that uh, too many calls were in the system. It was not that it wasn't working correctly. Interestingly enough, the phone, number of phone calls during American Idol outweigh the number of phone calls attempted in New York City on 9-11. 74 million calls were made to American Idol. 40 million calls were made to 9-11. That tells you how the phone system has changed that. So if now I'm at 9-11, what worked for me? Well, I could, I, I tried to use my cell phone if I'm inside the affected area, that worked. I used my phone, my regular phone, that worked. I had a Blackberry, that worked. Well, now we're post we're London bomb. Now, London actually made the first rule post 9 11. They were worried in the UK that someone would use a cellular signal to set off a bomb. Under any terrorist attack now overseas and now throughout the major cities in the US, when there is a threat of a terrorist attack, your entire cellular network is shut down. But now what works? Blackberry. Any data packets can be sent directly between one wireless device and another. You have two-way radios and blackberries. If you're in a corporate network, a lot of times they're going to block the blackberry traffic. How many people know that you have an individual pin number in every one of your blackberries? You know that you can send a blackberry message from one to the other without ever going through the corporate network. That I do know. Every one of you. Does it work for other devices like trios? Yeah. Um, no, specifically blackberry. Because trios only utilize the actual exchange server to send and receive. They're actually connected that. It is a BlackBerry function. There are some companies that have locked out this function, but during major issues that you're having, it actually takes your BlackBerry and makes it work exactly like an analog two-way pager. It does not send a signal over the digital network, but over the analog network that sends the message much farther. Okay, so uh, again, first attack on outside the available area. Now my, my landline, I can't call in. But what can I do with that? Blackberry with them, I can go to the two-way pager, and actually you can chat online. That's a very interesting one. For a lot of people, what happened during London bombings is that when they actually turned off the cellular network, people went into the pubs with the internet cafes and were chatting back and forth with people, letting them know that they were okay. They also, you know the red booths that are all up London? They all have internet now. So you have people going into the booths. But all the pubs and all the other stores were closed, and then people had actually filed out of the city. 
wanted to know a post of disaster. Curfews are definitely going to be set by your local authorities. Whether that means you're actually going home, shacking up at a hotel, or actually going into a you know area that New York is a central station, areas where we can put large amounts of people. ATMs may not function. That goes directly to the need of cash during the rest. Street navigation may be difficult. That's the fall on telephone poles and everything else that can take Phone service go to priority users first. That's what I was stressing before. And when I say priority users, it's not only inside the affected area, it'll actually go to police stations, uh, hospitals, etc., utility workers before we're able to use them. Lines waiting for fuel will grow. Basically, that's uh, for any gas for your generators and everything like that. Virtual office personnel without power, we're talking to the office, work locally. Um, conference calls and water sources may be damaged. That's where it comes from. So that concludes our first part of our presentation. <clears throat> Any questions? Anything? <laughs> All right, well, we're going to move on to uh, our uh, next part of the presentation. Uh, and I'll introduce uh, Alyssa Greenlee, who's uh, Vice President of Corporate Security for Exelon. Uh, she joins Exelon from Seals with Sears Holding Corporation, where she was the business operations managing attorney responsible for loss prevention, environmental affairs and safety, food safety, and farm, pharmacy business, sale of firearms, first the Gavin Bullet, that is related, right here. Uh, at Exelon, she's responsible for security planning, policy development, implementation, business continuity, corporate crisis management, and ensuring protection of Exelon's assets in corporate investigations. So, everybody, please welcome. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for that for inviting me and uh, my colleague being invited uh, to this uh, function. Exxon um, Corporation is not in the business of real estate. We are a utility company. Uh, next slide. And, and just to talk a bit about that, um, we support Illinois and Philadelphia. Yes, we are ComEd. Um, and for all of you who are local, obviously, uh, the idea that we keep the lights on is critical to your master of disaster uh, plan. Um, we have a number of different business units um, that we've got nuclear plants uh, across different states. We have obviously the regulated utilities, ComEd and Peter in Philadelphia area. We also have generation and um, business services. Business services is essentially a function that is all cross-functional that supports all of the business units. Um, I guess my presentation to you today is all post-9-11. Because of the critical need of keeping the lights on, as I'm sure that it, I don't have to state why, um, the decision was made by Asthma Corporation to uh, centralize and come up with, to the best you can, a transparency of process from local disaster level to something you need to monitor to all the way to the management. The philosophy, the theme of uh, that is safety of our employees, and, and second is to supply uh, energy and uh, keep the lights on our behalf of our customers. Uh, this uh, actually gives you what our organization or my department is responsible for. As corporate security, we have the oversight uh, of function for all the various functional areas that is needed. 
to prove me by the need that 60 minutes is gone. Um, and that it requires a senior manager to convene to make the strategic decisions and then leave the business units with their PCP plans to respond to tactical responses and make sure that the lives are kept up. Each of the process management programs slash BCP has to have certain fundamentals. And I don't think I'm saying anything that is shocking. There has to be a planning. Uh, but the planning must make sense, must be logical, must not be dense. Uh, the problem with a lot of planning and a lot of procedures that it sort of occupies that space on your shelf. What you need to do for um, whatever business you are in is to make sure that the plan is concise. And if there are particular details uh, that lead that to the specific building or structure, and let them come up with a more detailed plan, or just frankly, it's good judgment. So the BCP plan is essentially something that has to have obviously the planning component to make sure that the critical function of the business can carry on, or what does it take if there is a, a disaster to recover that. Uh, obviously, the training, the more you tell your employees about this concept of thinking and, and the fact that there is these plans that needs to be looked at, used as a user's guide, not as a esoteric book product, but as a user's guide, is critical. And then drilling, you got to drill. you got to know how long, let's say, an example of a piece of drilling would be, um, it could be IT, okay, what is actually being backed up from um, information technology? Um, what is actually not backed up that's critical to, critical to your functionality? Where is the gap? If, if there is a drill, there should be a gap analysis. And then we got to figure out how to close the gap if it's critical to your function. Um, the other thing is, from a corporate security, when we look at all the different functions and they come up with the PCP, we own, uh, and we write who's my lead, Crisis management coordinator. We need to make sure we get that smart. That it allows for uniqueness for uh, different functions, but that there's a consistency of message, a consistency of the uh, philosophy of why we are doing the way we are doing. And drilling data is something that's critical. Um, that's it for the pandemic actually does come with the account. Who the expectation is that it's going to be 40% reduction in workforce. To the extent that we plan should uh, include remote uh, capabilities of working, to the extent that uh, the non-core essential functions should basically go by the wayside, at least until we recover, what are you going to do uh, of communicating to your employees about the fact that we are at a pandemic? What have we done up to that point before it hits? And how will we keep the lights on? Because not all things can be done remotely. Um, you know, we looked at alternative, uh, when we work remotely, and all of that being said, there's still a point where we need live people to actually run our businesses so that the lights can't be So it's, it's a challenge. Um, and then the constant, constant, uh, reasonable, good, not confusing communication that we must start way early on. And it's communication that is uh, educational as well as but calming the potential panic of the situation. As you communicate to your company, uh, 
uh, about a pandemic. That's a pretty depressing time. And uh, to be able to communicate the plan and to be able to, to communicate with your people that we're, we're doing the best we can and we have a plan in place, don't panic, is, is a very tight balance. Uh, but we use uh, leveraging the other industry uh, organizations to see what they're doing benchmarking. Um, and I'll tell you, on the pandemic, uh, they're pretty much, they're not really sharing, but um, you know, we're seeking out assistance from Google, CDC, uh, from the government. And the government really, on, on the pandemic, uh, they're looking to the private sector. So from the pandemic, from utility and the federal government, there is a major drive to share information with the private sector and vice versa. Uh, the problem with the federal government and sharing information with uh, the critical infrastructure, such as utility, is uh, they would like information. We would like to give that information, but we would like to ensure that they're going to use that information for a specific need and not beyond the scope uh, using uh, the purpose of why we share some critical sites and whatnot. Uh, but they are getting uh, to a right place that there is a critical need to share information and maybe private companies are better equipped at uh, planning disasters. Uh, slide five. As far as our uh, business continuity plans, post uh, 9-11, uh, we update that three times a year. Uh, and we also test it annually and uh, we drill basically the, the call tree, which is how long does it take to actually get to the activation and notification and escalation of the, uh, of the right people. Um, there was a BIA business impact analysis that was conducted in 2005 across enterprise wide on all business continuity or business resumption uh, gaps and issues. Uh, the next one will be a, in 2008. What I've come to find out is that this is a living sort of plan. You could never, ever keep a plan and not move, not look at it constantly to make sure. Because it's, you're trying to plan for disaster. So therefore, there's going to be new technology, there's going to be new emerging issues that, frankly, you have to respond to so that they, that our employees and our functional group that keeps the light on sees this as a, as a living user's management and not something to, to scale the dust. Um, the crisis management team, which was also developed in 9-11, which is, is basically sort of a spot for people that, frankly, has to make strategic decisions. Um, is uh, in reality what we expect is that out of percent, only two percent of the issues, emerging issues of disasters and crisis, actually require the uh, the meaning of the crisis management team. The crisis management team is essentially made up of head of HR, head of IT, uh, uh, the CEO or CEO, uh, head of security. Um, and that's essentially where there's a command center and they get full information from the business units from uh, the ones, the first responders. And first responders will triage and fix the issue and get to the plan of BCP to meet the need operation. But keep in mind, when there's national press coverage such as Katrina, uh, what is said may be completely wrong. But sometimes what is said becomes a reality, and perception is reality. How do you manage that? How do you calm the clients that we have that, that, that 
You know what? The lights have to actually go on to the hospitals and the first responders first. We are working on getting the lights to your home. How do you make sure that every customer understands the, the necessity that there is a priority that is actually dictated by the federal government as to what is and is not a key critical sector to keep our society as it's being maintained? And it's, you know, it's the health care, it's the first responders, the fire department, and utility, we're pretty high up there because obviously if the lights aren't on, there's a shutdown of your disaster plant, there's a shutdown of our first responders, and there's just a, a chaos that just cannot be uh, handled. So uh, I understand why the, while this is a real estate audience, I think there is, this is very logical that you understand you know, why I need to react on behalf of someone a working plan to handle disaster and why there is a need for coordination, transparency, and a very small group of executives that are frankly, at the end of the day, as Paul Powell said, if you've got about 65 to 70% of facts, the rest is up. Because in a disaster, you will not be able to validate and have 100% of accurate information. It's, this is where you, you pay for your uh, position. This is your gut. This is your good judgment. This is me saying, based upon the information I have today, not four weeks from now in the post world, I have to make a decision. And that's what it is. It's, it's, it's you know, it's high time without a doubt. But you got to, if you, there's a thought process of analyzing a disaster, I think we at least get rid of sort of uh, bad information and have some sort of a, a, a functioning tree that we could at least make the best reason decision at the time based upon what we know. Um, and you have to work from a work, uh, plan to a worst case scenario. Uh, and for each of the buildings that we have, so we have categorized them as tier one, tier two, and tier three. The significance of that is a building that basically is our backup for our records. That's not a tier one. Tier one is basically a functioning facility building that is critical to keep the lights on. And our expectation is, our plan is that they need to be covered within two hours. And then you may have just record retention. Well, they, we look at it as maybe three to four weeks. So you've got to identify your structure, your building, whether it's leased or owned, as to the criticality of your business. Um, and that seems to work out really well. At least we know what the priorities are. Now it's what do we have uh, planned for next coming few months? Uh, we will, Exelon will be uh, drilling our corporate crisis management uh, format using the uh, business continuity, and then the scenario will be the pandemic. So it will be a true challenge, and the, the purpose of a drill, everybody actually understands, is to identify gaps. This is not you know, failing or passing a test. This is to now see what is written on paper, if it makes sense, if it doesn't make sense, and, and walk away from it, do a postmortem, identify the gaps, and fill in the gaps. And all of this cannot be done without the senior management support, and thankfully, you know, it was driven by senior management. And it's always with the, with the two things, safety of our employees, 
keep the lights on, the safety of our employees and keep the lights on. So essentially, uh, any type of crisis, if it's a fire, if it's a natural uh, hurricane, power outage, whatever, it's going to be responded at a local level. And, and that's where the, the business continuity program or plan will be used as a guide. Um, now, the business support team, which is right in the middle, is essentially from business unit leaders. That would be the president of Comet, the president of PICO, the president of Nuclear. Who's your right-hand man? Who's your core group? It's going to be communication, because uh, we need to communicate and uh, externally to official media, to our employees. Uh, who's the core group that you would go to to fix the problem? And, and that business support team is actually the liaison to that 2% corporate crisis management team activation. And a lot of times, uh, the, the concept of corporate crisis management activation is it's not an activation, but it's really convenient to let them know. It may impact the board directors, it may impact your stock. It's just keeping them aware. If there has to be a triage of resources, from Philadelphia to Chicago because of the disaster and the worship and the sickness and whatnot. That's the other decision that the corporate uh, crisis management team can facilitate and can authorize. Um, so it goes from local response to the incident support, which is basically the business support concept. And that 2% of the time where uh, I would actually, based upon the type of an emergency issue, I would convene the corporate crisis management team. And they would decide whether they're just going to have a supporting role or monitoring role. Um, and then, if it is, you got Barbara Walters calling, you got you know the uh, sort of uh, perception, destroying reality going on. Then there's going to be an activation of that two percent time to address the customers as well as any other source of confusion um, in whatever disaster it may be. So examples of um, the type of risks that would potentially be a crisis management. Obviously, on a security level, it would be terrorism, uh, executive kidnapping, uh, workplace violence, or an employee that would be employee sabotage, workplace violence, loss of senior executive. Uh, governmental would be uh, negative regulatory action, labor, uh, environmental, financial, and transportation. Um, there could be corporate malfeasance that impacts reputation, uh, public relations, you know, you've got somebody out there using the mass media to say X is completely wrong and it impacts your ability, the confidence level, level that customers may have about your business. So all of these things are, you know, obviously some of the risk. Does that mean it's, it stays at a local level or it stays at sort of above that? It could, or it could rise up to the corporate crisis management team. Operationally, you know, you've got hazardous products, uh, fires. Speaking of fires, um, if there are no questions, I am going to introduce the next speaker here. Um, and his name is Greg Travis. Uh, I just met a great guy. He's going to be a grandfather. Uh, well, you were a grandfather last Thursday, right? Last Tuesday. And okay. a little bit of bio about uh, Greg is um, he's the vice president of Joe Lang LaSalle has more than 32 years of commercial real estate experience uh, managing and leasing investment properties and corporate real estate projects. Prior to joining property management team at the Cell Bank building 
for the role of the general manager, director of AS, director of facilities and exhibit maintenance at the Museum of Science and Industry, and was responsible for overseeing all aspects of property and facility management at the world famous Chicago Museum. In addition to his duties at the LaSalle Bank building, Greg serves as group manager and has oversight responsibilities at the Museum of Science and Industry. And I think he's going to have a pretty hands-on and compelling presentation to tell you uh, about a certain facility that I think you all will recognize. Thank you. Uh, it, it could be a career limiting experience to be in front of the cameras, so be very careful when you do 
requiring fail-safe locking devices on all stairwell doors. And uh, Navy and Admiral being you know, sort of the landlord and owner that we are, did that right away. So uh, early in uh, that following, following year after the fire, all, all the doors in the, in the South Bank building have been retrofitted. And uh, that one little thing because people who found themselves in the stairwell full of smoke were able to get back out and get uh, into an area of the rescue. Fire rates for over five hours. Our fire pumps ran continuously for five hours, pumping um, 20, you know, two million gallons of water uh, into the building. Damaged the carpet in the elevator and a few other things that you might imagine. We literally lost um, our electric service. <coughs> the fire burned up. Surfaces like marble, for example. Um, but we literally had to tear the building apart to the outer shell uh, in a lot of places to get the smoke, get it clean, uh, get the walls encapsulated to, to reduce the smoke. And it's still, at certain times when the humidity is just right and you're in the right part of the building, you can still get a little whiff of something. Um, we, we try not to call it smoke. It's, um, you know, we used to make barbecue down the street. We don't here are some lessons that we learned, um, and, and, and these are lessons that we've shared with other organizations, Bulma, IFMA, I, I, I share them with whoever because I really I think it's important to share this kind of information, but the preparation really does save lives, and I think we were very, very fortunate uh, that night because we, we do have a, have always had a good property team and have a property and always spent a lot of time training guns. In fact, we had an evacuation drill about two weeks before our fire. So emergency teams were sort of prepared and ready, and um, everybody had just been trained. Unfortunately, the fire happened at 6 o'clock, uh, so the emergency teams were gone. Most of you know that the floor works on your floors are probably um, the lowest common denominator. That's great, the sellers or whoever you can shove that job off to. Uh, that, that has kind of changed since our fire. People, more senior people are taking more responsibility for the, you know, the training uh, aspects and uh, actually learning what they should do within the fire. Another lesson learned is you know, avoid fire whenever you can. Uh, they're not really good for buildings or people. Fail safe home stair tower doors. If you, if you don't own your building and don't understand this, or if you're a tenant in the building, that's a question you should ask to make sure that the building management has install that field safe hardware because it really will save your life in an emergency. Uh, the evacuation signage is a panic proof. You know, interestingly, we, we heard from, from tenants that evacuated that night that, you know, we didn't know where to go um, because you were telling us to go to the east stairwell or the west stairwell, and we didn't know which way was east or west, even though we are labeled that way. Um, but people were so panicked that, you know, they got, got into this, uh, the stairwell was full of smoke instead of the stairwell we were trying to send them to. So, you know, some changes that we made, we color-coded the stairwells. So people, we can tell them to go to the blue stairwell or the yellow stairwell, and hopefully they can remember that. But then for the people that might be uh, color-challenged, um, we, we also labeled ABCD all the way through H. 
Um, and that's, I don't think that has sort of helped. We have installed the luminescent paint on the stairwells uh, because one of the things we found was the stairwells filled up with smoke and people have a hard time uh, seeing where they're going. So that, that has seemed to help. Uh, we learned that sprinklers are working great and built. You know, had the building been sprinkled uh, the night of the fire, it really wouldn't have even gotten started. It would have been put out almost immediately. Um, built in 1934, we had a tongue and groove maple floor that eventually caught on fire in it. And uh, since then, we talked about what great firewood that really is. If you could buy that, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, early warning fire detection, smoke detection, is worth its weight in, in silver. Um, smoke detection, in my, in, in the age of building that I have, is really not a requirement, but when we found out what the cause of the fire was, and we, and we really don't even know today what it was, but we know where it started. It started above the ceiling. Probably a light balance or something like that. Uh, but had we had smoke detection that, that would have given us that early warning, we probably wouldn't have needed sprinklers because we would have gotten there and, and probably taken care of it with the fire extinguisher. If it been on the fire floor or a floor that was severely damaged with water, we could have lost all of our data. So that was a lesson. Um, but please don't, you know, I'm not stupid. Lots of people make these same kind of mistakes. I'm just telling, I'm being honest with you, telling you what happened. Uh, contractors or strategic partners, you got to kind of look at people and, and many times it does make sense to bid, bid work out and do stuff, but I can tell you that LaSalle Bank has developed relationships with contractors over the years who have served, served as well. And, and there's no question in my mind that there are times that I could probably get things cheaper than I, you know, if I do something out for the the night of the fire, I didn't call anyone. I didn't call a single person from, from my contractor team. They just showed up. And most of these guys have grown up in this building. They raised their kids working in this building. The painters, the plasters, the electricians. Um, they love the building as much as I love it. And um, it, really, it really helped us a lot get ahead of this thing very quickly. I, I was also working with some client partners that understand real estate. Um, and every step of the way, it was not me trying to sell them what, what had to happen. They were setting at the table with me and helping make these decisions. And it's one of the reasons that we were so successful. We're able to get people back in the building so quickly. Um, I want to say a little bit about staying in the loop. And I don't necessarily mean you know, the hell loop, but the information loop. I went to a meeting yesterday. I don't know if any, did any of you get a chance to go to that meeting that Bowman put on with Cortez Trotter? It was, uh, the, the city of Chicago did a massive activation drill back in the fall. And the purpose of the meeting yesterday was to deliver a report on what they learned as a part of, part of this evacuation. And a couple of things that I, I walked away from that I, I thought might be useful uh, to share with you here today. There's one system in the city of Chicago called the Emergency Alert Radio Network. And this is basically just a, a um, shortwave radio that you can purchase, right, it costs about 700 bucks, and have it in your uh, like security office, in your building, whatever. And there's only about 10 different people that have authority to transmit over that radio. It's you know, like the chief of police, the fire department, the OEMC, Cortex Trotter, I'm sure. Uh, Bowman has um, but the, the way they use that is if, if there's a, a large chemical hazmat spill or 
if there's some area of the loop that you should really avoid, or if for some reason you have to evacuate the whole city, um, they actually call the Aon building where this where this transmitter is, provide the message, and it goes off out over the emergency uh, radio network. So you, you get information very quickly with this thing. Um, that that's something that was started by Bowman, and you, you initially had to be a Bowman building to, to participate, but uh, the partnership was developed between Bowman and the city of Chicago. They've now decided any, any building wants this can happen, so it's, it's something that's worthwhile to look at. Uh, another thing that, that Bowman and the city of Chicago have come up with was this uh, send word now. And there's lots of companies out there doing this. I think there's a company called Rainclair and, and maybe some others. But any, any building in the city of Chicago can provide contact information to, the, to BOMA and be included in the send word now. And, and the idea is that my property, for example, I submitted myself and my assistant, assistant general managers and my security people, provide them with all my contact information, my home numbers, cell numbers, Blackberry, uh, email addresses, both at home and at work. And when anything happens, whoever's a part of this list gets all the information on all the avenues at the same at the same time. So it's it's a way it's a way for them to disseminate information very quickly to a lot of different uh, devices. So the cell phones aren't working you on your home phone, for example. That is free for all Bowman members and uh, they said there was some nominal charge for non-Bowman members. Now this this works at a level of information coming from the city to to properties. Um, but you can also buy this as a as an occupant uh, or a building manager if you're managing a building and build the same kind of information network as a tenant in your building. So if I have some message that I want to just get to all my tenants at one time, um, I'll be able to use this as well. So it's it's new technology, I guess it's all not all that new, but it's fairly new in Chicago. So that that is a, a tactical event that we just kind of talked about that that one particular fire and lessons that we learned. I want to spend just a few minutes talking to you about foresight. Uh, foresight, and I'm not don't get scared. It's not going to be an infomercial. It's going to be very scary. But I want to tell you about the way that Jones Lang LaSalle has approached uh, emergency planning and disaster recovery. And uh, foresight just happens to be the name that uh, that was given to this platform. It is a web-based platform. It's, it's, it's really a, uh, a software platform, hardware platform, but it's more of a process of how we think about emergencies and how we plan them. One of the things that we uh, like to do as a company is, is try to be a standard and consist, uh, consistent in the way we deliver our services uh, across the portfolio. And uh, as was mentioned earlier, many times what happens is you develop some emergency plans and you put them on a shelf and you don't really think about them until until maybe you have an emergency, and then only if you can remember where you would look. Uh, foresight is more, more about a, a thinking process, how we think about emergencies and how we uh, build our plans. So this web-based platform was built, and, and templates were built for each of the major emergencies and the rest that we could uh, come up with. And the uh, information really came from a lot, lots of recommendations from experts and lots of extensive research and, uh, in some cases, uh, history, such as the fire at 135. Um, the Private Sector Preparedness Act of 2004 was uh, considered when this was developed. The 9-11 Commission Report, Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, 
well-known. All of those sources were uh, considered. And our, our corporate emergency planning folks developed these generic plans and templates and provided them to all the properties. Now I can tell you that over the, over the history of you know, LaSalle Partners and, and now Jones Lane LaSalle, we had pretty extensive emergency plans, but when you, when you think about it one time, you write the emergency plans and you don't really test them or try them, uh, it's kind of funny what happens. I told, uh, before we had foresight, I had a, a, a bomb threat in one of the buildings I managed, and one of the first things I did was pull out my emergency plan and open it up and look, and as I went down the list, I realized there were very few things on that list of things that I could actually do without causing a panic and dumping the whole building out into the street. So, um, what, what foresight really forces you to do, since you're starting with a generic plan, is you, you really do have to sit and, and think about each specific step and how that's going to affect your particular property. These plans address all the threats that are called out by the NFPA, and, and we basically go through a five-step process. We identify the threat, uh, do a risk assessment for our own specific building and our specific geography. Uh, we begin to build on that generic plan for our proactive uh, response and, and mitigation of risk. You know, what, what kinds of things can we do ahead of time to prepare so we're, uh, we're not having to do those things uh, when the risk actually happens. When we have our, our reactive response plan, you know, how are we going to react uh, if that situation happens? And then finally, the recovery plan. And this is not really so much geared towards business recovery as it is recovery of our real estate, how, how we get people back into the building. Our tenants uh, basically have their own business continuity plans for the most part. I can tell you that when we had the fire at 135, uh, the bank really didn't miss a beat. They, were, they, they didn't lose any business at all. Lots of my other tenants were in that same shape in the small law firms, small investment firms. Had no, I had lawyers basically begging me to sneak them in the building so they could get case files because they had litigation. And the fire department was just not letting us get people back in. Um, I think a lot of our a lot of our tenants today have put a lot more thought into the business continuity plan as a result of the fire, but it certainly didn't help them at that point. Next. You know, key roles and, and responsibilities, this is this is just kind of an example of how we looked at how we're going to use the resources that we have on our property. You really need to have an incident commander, somebody that's going to be, be the tactical leader of, of the team that you have on site. Uh, and the emergency manager is something that FEMA recommends. And the emergency manager is more of a strategic thinker, somebody that's supporting that tactical person and keeping, keeping the noise away from them so they can really do their job. Uh, but we've assigned roles to each of our property team members uh, based on their level of expertise and experience with the business and how they can be most, most useful. It's kind of funny, in the emergency manager uh, role, I, I, was, I was forced basically because our policy is to keep our senior management informed about what's going on in a crisis like this. So part of our plan is stay in constant contact. And I was, I was on the phone every day at a certain time with our senior leadership and our CEO asked me, after the third day, Greg, what, what can we do to help you? I said, 
stop making me this call every day. That would help. Because literally, it's taking an hour. And it's not something you really think about until I mean, you, you have 40 people asking you questions all at once. And now you have to stop being productive and go fill people in. So he said, well, you know, we, we really have to be kept informed. I said, well, send somebody from corporate over here to attend my meetings and then they can fill you with Because I, I really don't have an hour a day that I can go And he said, I'd be like it. So it worked. <laughs> and I didn't make you mad in the process. Um, we have all of our key contacts for our properties in Foresight. And, and the reason that Foresight really works well for us is because we can do it from anywhere. I mean, I can, if I can't get to my building, I can work across the street, access my emergency plan, access all my contacts, all my contact lists, and be productive someplace. That doesn't sound good. Um, so we, we have all of our uh, 10 employee emergency contact lists in there, our, our uh, employee emergency team information, who are fire wardens and searchers and all those, and those folks are. Uh, we keep our vendor contractor emergency contact lists in there, you know, in case we can mobilize um, teams of contractors to get back to the property. Our property team emergency contact list, all, all the emergency telephone numbers that we possibly need to emergency to keep in this uh, foresight plan. Uh, so we can work outside. Um, our, our foresight plans call for emergency command centers. You have to have uh, both an on-site emergency command center and an off-site emergency command center. So for example, if I, if I can't get in my building to work for whatever reason, I already have a plan to go down to one financial place, 440 South and South, another one of the properties, and work in their emergency command center. And they, it's a reciprocal agreement. If, if they can't get in their building, they know they can come to my building and we'll support them to get to that emergency. Because there are times you can't have access to your the management office. There can maybe limited or no access to the building. And in some cases, maybe not even access to the city. You know, in the case of 9-11, I'm sure there were lots of people that would have loved to have been able to you know, be productive someplace besides Manhattan. Work from Staten Island or something, someplace, and at least be productive with a good thing. Probably don't touch it. So, the mitigation part uh, reduce risk and minimize damage. You know, things like, as we, as we look at each risk, we, we try to come up with ways to mitigate it. You know, if we're thinking about hurricanes and tornadoes, maybe it's, it's plywood and screw guns and sandbags. Whatever, but we have a we have a mitigation plan for every risk uh, that we that we look at. The corporate template comes out with a bunch of good ideas. Seems to consider not really what the requirements. We, we can pick and choose what works for our goal. Uh, reactive response plan uh, could be something like: Are we, we going to evacuate during this risk, or are we going to shelter in place? Those are the kinds of things you think about. You know, chemical, biological, those kinds of risks usually call for you to stay in a shelter in place. If it's, if, it's a, if it's an issue inside the building, you're probably going to evacuate. But we're really going to think through each, each tactical step of our response, uh, reactive response, as we, as we develop our plans. We have our incident classes grouping um, and group our threats by whether or not they're natural risks, human cause, 
And then we have a, a category that's called generalist for all the administrative kind of stuff like the contact lists and emergency commands and those, those sorts of things. The incident types, you know, the different types of threats like hurricanes, tornadoes, fire, terrorism, etc. Um, all of our procedures are property property specific. We try to customize each one of these plans to be um, specific to that property. Then incident classes, in the general uh, classification, uh, we have our mitigation tools and equipment. Uh, we talk about the emergency command center, what that looks like, what should be at the emergency command center, how it should be equipped, and what the communication uh, uh, strategy is. Uh, evacuation, relocation, shelter in place, what those what those tactical plans look like. If we're going to evacuate where people are going to go, if we're going to relocate them, where we're going to relocate them, and then shelter in place. Uh, we talk about that. We have our general building startup procedures. So if you lose a building, like we lost a couple of buildings in a hurricane Katrina, somebody eventually has to go back in and bring that building up. So the general building startup procedures are listed step by step so you know what what you can turn on what you can't turn on etc we have OSHA requirements in there we have a list of people that need assistance on, on every floor and then we go through the roles and responsibilities so you, you can figure out who's supposed to be doing what the natural incidents that we were looking at are all of these for example um, the animal or insect infestation i was a little nervous the other day when they made a report of cicadas. I don't really have a plan for cicadas, but um, <laughs> we're going to be working on it. But these are all sort of the natural disasters. Um, the human-caused disasters are ones that we worry about probably more in the city here than we do the, the natural. Um, there's a bunch of those that we go through. And it, and for each property, we don't, we don't, we're not really required to um, develop a plan for a tsunami, for example, in downtown Chicago. Uh, Lake Michigan is actually dropping. It's not, it's not much of a, a risk. So we really try to focus on the risks that are highest for, for our particular uh, geography. And the next slide is, is the one I want to spend just a, a couple minutes talking about. You know, drilling, drilling our plans, we found, is, is the best way to make them good plans. And, um, we typically try to bring people from different different aspects of our property team. We bring in security guards and engineers, um, people that don't typically get to set the table and come up with strategy, but unfortunately those are the folks that are going to be implementing the strategy. But when we really think about who runs the building, the property team is there for you know, 10 or 12 hours a day sometimes, but the rest of the time and on the weekends, when you have security people there, you have janitorial people, you have engineering folks uh, that are in the middle. So they really uh, needed to have a seat at the table to tell us what was really going to happen if we had these kinds of situations. So we, we began, uh, in, in each one of our properties around the country, it's, it's required to do this once a month, the different risk. We bring in a team, you can pick one of your high risk, whether it be fire explosion or water flood or uh, workplace violence. Spend a little time ahead of time developing the scenario, what, you know, what's going to happen uh, during, this, during this event. And then we begin asking questions, well, what would you do if that's happening? And, and people start to throw out ideas of what they think they should do. Many times there are things that we haven't thought of, and they're great ideas, and we get to put it on plan. And sometimes there are things that we actually don't want them to do, and we, we make that a part of our training plan to make sure they don't do it. 
All right, so we still got five left. So we still got commercial facilities, shelters, general service, water, sewage, and food center. Water, sewage. Number four. Okay, what do we think number five is? I If I have the thing up here, you would not be on the All right. So number number six is shelters. Okay, so you got two left: commercial facilities and general service. What do you think? What do you think is the last? Commercial facilities. Your house is last. General circuits is your house. Commercial facility are number seven. So what do you learn? We're the least important. Okay? This is the order in which every hurricane or tornado alley lies. So, yes? Where would things like streetlights and traffic signals fall? Um, actually, the water service station. The reason that most of those turn on quite later is because if there's green streets, you'll have open, you'll, you know, you'll have open surface and open areas. They'll do it by grid. That's what I thought that was Yeah, they'll do it. They'll really do it. Now, the reason that commercial facilities are first is because for the most part, there are people. We are one of the companies that does it. We know the wind speeds of every building. I would move people and take their families and put them in the building with food service so they know where they are, you know they're safer than they are in their home, and they're actually watching the real estate in that area if there's not an activation. So it's pretty much well known in the municipalities and the cities that you have more people in the commercial buildings during situations like that than you actually do have in the home. What do they tell everybody? Move in your basement, right? Well, I'd rather be in a tower that can actually withstand 120 mile an hour well, thank you guys very much for the, for the time. Is there any questions for anything to bring up? I have a question for... Um, Greg. Greg, sorry. Um, you talked about color coding stairwells and putting alphabet letters in. When you're doing the um, drills, the evacuation drills, you ever do it in such a framework that everybody goes to their designated thing and then all of a sudden you say this one's blocked and then they have to scramble to figure out where they go? Yeah, we have signs we hold up that, that this stair power is full smoke or it's on fire or whatever. And so they have to find an alternate stairwell. I should also mention uh, after the fire, we developed a web based, we did develop it, we bought a web based evacuation training tool. Uh, so all of our tenants can go online and um, and take the training online. There's actually a test you know done on the We've tied that to issuance of an ID card, so you have to you have to take the test and pass it before you have an ID card and the building. So it gives people incentive to do that. We have done we have done it with the bank because they don't let us, but we do it with And it, it really it really does help. You, you know, if a new employee shows up and needs an ID, we know they're trained before. Um, now everybody, did everybody get a copy of the CIO magazine? Yes. Just whenever you get a chance, if you read what's in there, like Foresight is the all version of their system, and theirs is all about uh, emergency preparedness and creation of plans. That's great, it's very helpful. I've seen the system, it's a great system. 
Um, we have uh, something that actually complements it. it. We call it the incident reporting system. And ours concentrates on actually communicating during the disaster. So that's really what that article actually uh, concentrates on. What do you do to communicate while something is going on? How do you get the information out of the affected area into the hands of the people that are actually able to really speak to Yet another tool that all comes down Special thank you to Ian, Melissa, and Greg. Quick, please uh, make sure you pull out the speaker evaluation um, sheet. Uh, there are, because Indian hasn't done enough for us already. There's more food out, out there. There's beer and like, wine and uh, soda and drinks of certain kinds out there. And please go and enjoy. Uh, hopefully there's not time yet before you're training. I'm going to